listening to the Leadership Woman podcast with me, Jill Savile. And today's guest, I'm really excited to introduce him because he's somebody that I met in 2019 when I spotted him on Twitter and I invited him over to Luxembourg to speak at a leadership forum. He is a private prosecutor, a documentary filmmaker, and I'm going to talk to him today about why in his late 20s he decided to take the Prime Minister of the UK to court for lying. So I won't give you any more introduction. My guest today is Marcus Ball. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Pleasure to, to be involved. We, in fact, met on my birthday. Yes. <laughs> I had a lovely time, actually. Thank you for showing me Luxembourg. I, I'd, I'd never been before. It was a really interesting trip. We had a trip around the European Parliament. With a, Thanks with a, to Mirror. A leading, a leading judge. It was, it was fantastic, actually. A real, a real pleasure to be able to do that. Yeah, and it took you away, I think, from some of the pressure that you were under at the time. Enormous escapism, yes. <laughs> it was great. <laughs> yeah. I'd recently been landed in hundreds of thousands of pounds of court debts, and uh, the chance to escape the UK and come to Luxembourg meet some brilliant people and get some perspective was very valuable. So thank you. So before you did what it is that, that I know you for, um, what was your life like before that? What, what equipped you? Well, for the six years prior to starting my work against lying in politics, I was working on higher education reform. So I ran an experimental education company which existed to combine university students from different courses into teams and encourage them to start their own businesses and the focus was upon education learning different skills in a different environment introducing them to investors clients that kind of thing it was a more practical commercial way of learning uh, for young people so the reason I did that was because I wanted to change the way the university education system works. And I think that that experience of going through that process, trying to change the way big institutions function, set me up quite nicely for my work against stopping lying in politics, because it was essentially the same thing. It was societal change, systems change, trying to change the way things work, despite them having worked that way for hundreds of years. Um, coming up against the same kind of struggles, being um, blocked, being evaded, raising funds, meeting the right people, trying to solve problems, all that kind of thing. They were quite similar in many ways. Mm-hmm. When you were talking about the higher education reform, we have things, uh, we have quite a few incubators now in Luxembourg with the university and with different uh, companies like Vodafone. So it sounds like you were trying to do things. Um, earlier? I think that all universities and all courses should have a major focus upon practical learning, working in teams, working with students who have different skill sets and different education, because that's how we operate in the world, in the real world. We don't, um, if you look at a, a computer science student in a university, for example, the vast majority of the time, they're going to be surrounded by other computer science students. 
and they're going to be working in teams occasionally with other students who have very similar skills to their own. In the real world, that's not really how it works. So computer science students need to know how to communicate with designers, user interface experts, product managers, business people. They need to work as a team working with different skill sets. And I think that university education should reflect that more. And the incubators you mentioned are definitely the right, uh, the right direction to move in. And I think that more universities should make that the central focus of their educational programs. I think they're majorly beneficial. Mm. Okay, so we talked about skills. Let's move into values then, because I think this uh, fight against lying, this search for truth is very much around your values. So where, where did you get your values from? <laughs> where did I get my values from? Wow. Uh, that's a big question. <laughs> so my driving value, the most important value to me is my ambition and my desire to achieve something huge before I die. And um, I, I've just had this urge since I was about 12 years old to try and achieve something that matters to other people and matters to the world in a big way, because I feel like that would be the best way of achieving what I'm capable of and expressing my, my purpose, if you like. And I think that after a few years of, of feeling this way and up into my early 20s, I, I started to ask myself, where does my ambition come from? Where does this value come from, this desire to change the world and do something important? And I realized that this, this desire started at 12 years old at the same time as my sister passed away. So um, I had a sister growing up and she became very unwell with a genetic illness which there was no um, real cure for. And if there was a cure, it was going to be very difficult to, to actually achieve it. And unfortunately she did pass away. And I think on a psychological, emotional level that must've left an enormous hole and a, um, a lot of pain for a young person growing up and uh, a lot of grief. And I think there must've been some kind of desire subconsciously for me to fill that hole and to heal that wound through the um the therapy of achievement if you like it gives you this, this this drive and this energy and most of all it gives you a realization and appreciation for what life really means and it teaches mm -hmm. you a lesson that everybody thinks they know but they don't really know until they see death happen in front of them to someone they care about and that lesson is that you only have one life and it sounds cliche and silly, but that real realization, that sudden understanding that, yes, you are definitely going to die. If you get that lesson at a young age, so 12 years old when I got it, that's a gift. That's a, you know, that's a smack in the face. That's, look, you are going to die. So what the hell are you going to do with your life? And I like to think of that as being a gift from my sister. So despite her dying and it being terribly upsetting and painful, I try to take the most value from it that I could. And so I, I see that as a gift, as a, a, a realization that you have a time limit. So what are you going to do? Thank you. Thank you for, for sharing that. You're still alive. You've got a life. So what are you going to do with it? Yeah. And also for her, I mean, if I just did nothing with my life and didn't really try to achieve anything, it would be an insult to her because in a way I kind of have to do two people's lives, if that makes right. sense, as a, as a credit to her. Yeah, it, it does. 
I, I said to you earlier, I listened to your talk in the leadership forum this morning, and um, I might be putting you on the spot here. Can you remember the three things that you said? Was it the three examples of lying in politics that motivated me? I think so, yes, it was. So um, a question I'm often asked is, why did you start your work to, uh, to challenge lying in politics? Why did you prosecute a politician to try and prove that lying in politics is illegal? Why would you spend five years of your life and put yourself into enormous debt trying to fight this big problem? And the way I explain it is to give them some context. So three major events happened as I grew up. The first occurred in 2003. We had um, Tony Blair and his government initiate an invasion of Iraq with the US. Everybody accuses Tony Blair of having lied about the Iraq war, but what he specifically lied about was the intelligence he was given, which claimed, he said it claimed that there was no doubt that Saddam possessed weapons of mass destruction and that he was a clear and present danger to the UK and its interests. However, that's not actually what the intelligence said. The intelligence report said that over the last four years, they knew very little about Saddam's WMD technology and capabilities. That's your first example. As a young person growing up, you see the most powerful, important politician in the country lying to the whole world about the reasons for starting a war. And that's resulted in hundreds of thousands of people dying. Example number two, I think this was 2010. I was a university student studying history. And I coincidentally, I was learning about politicians and wars being started based upon lies in the past. And um, it was my first time to vote. Nick Clegg, David Cameron, uh, Gordon Brown, etc. They were all in the running. And Nick Clegg at the time was this very young, charismatic, likable politician. And lots and lots of students like me flocked to him. And he became this kind of cult figure during that election. And he was very popular and famous for two big things he said. The first thing was that he said that he would vote against any rise in tuition fees under any circumstances. And the second thing he's famous for is um, his campaigning video, which said that if we vote for him, he will fight to bring an end to broken promises. No more broken promises in politics, Nick Clegg said. And what's the first thing he did when he became the deputy prime minister? First thing he did was he broke his biggest promise and he voted to not only rise um, to raise tuition fees, I think he raised it by three times, I think, was it 300% or something? And uh, that was just a big slap in the face to, to everybody. But then he reveals later on after the election that he was aware that he could not do that. So the actual promise itself was the lie, which is what some people don't quite understand. Um, and I, I felt it very keenly because I voted for the Lib Dems based upon what he had said. And I felt like I had been duped and then the third example was in 2016, when we had politicians campaigning in the Brexit referendum, and in particular, the big red bus, which is now very famous, and the claim that the UK sends £350 million a week to the EU. And from my perspective, this was just too far. It was too much. So you've got three examples. You've got a politician lying to all of us in, our, in order to start a war that kills hundreds of thousands of people. You've got a politician telling us that he will fight against broken promises and um, he will vote against a rise in tuition fees under any circumstances. And then you've got uh, people like Boris Johnson and Michael Gove 
making claims about billions of pounds of public spending, which are just completely deceitful. Mm. So money, lives and votes. And I was suddenly of an age where I felt I could actually do something about it. I was 26. And if you look at the, um, the current laws that politicians themselves have made, there are, there's law after law after law preventing self-employed people from lying to the government about their income taxes and their assets. There are laws against companies and advertisers lying to the public about their services and products. Yet the people who make these laws do not have laws preventing themselves from lying to us. Yeah, that's why I started this work. They're the three examples that I think I mentioned them before. Is that the same that was mentioned? It's the same three, yeah. Right. So, uh, <laughs> so you weren't lying. Yeah. <laughs> so um, uh, there is something that stipulates that MPs shouldn't lie in the House. And I'm trying to think what it is. There are, there are two authorities. There's the Code of Conduct for Members of Parliament, which has a list of duties and responsibilities that MPs are meant to abide by. And that actually formed a part of our prosecution case. Um, and then there's, certain, there's, there's something called Erskine May, which is a, a, a list of parliamentary traditions and procedures that have been built up over the last few hundred years. And they seek uh, to provide a guide to MPs in terms of how they should act in the chamber. So um, if, uh, if a minister or an MP lies to the House of Commons during a debate, they um, should immediately come back to the House and correct their mistake. That is what is traditionally seen as being what should occur. But on the other side, there is a rule that MPs cannot be accused of lying in the House because it's seen as yeah. being an unparliamentary remark. So you were 26. These three things happened and you decided uh, enough was enough. So how did you, how, did, how on earth did you begin? What did you do? Well, the first thing I did was I got very upset. <laughs> uh, I wasn't politically engaged prior to the referendum result. I wasn't campaigning or anything like that. And I just assumed that there would be a vote and we'd remain in the EU and it would be very interesting. And the leave vote was very shocking. So I spent two days really examining what were the biggest claims used and how this had occurred. And the big red bus just kept coming up over and over again. And it was just completely wrong. And um, caught up in the moment, I think about a week later, I had filmed a video for crowdfunding and I simply told everybody in this video what it was that I wanted to achieve. I didn't know exactly what I was doing. I just believed and I knew that there, there must be a legal solution to this because what's occurred is so morally incorrect that they can't not be. And I had a lot of faith in the law that there must be a solution to this. And so I started to crowdfund. And um, in the first day, I was too nervous to put it online. <laughs> I think I was the only person who funded myself in that first 24 hours. <laughs> but eventually, I, I built up the courage to put it online. And it just went crazy. Um, the video that I used in terms of if you want to talk about leadership for the, for the podcast, I expressed what I believed. And I used... The, uh, the Simon Sinek golden circle concept where you explain what you believe and um, the why, how, what structure. So I believe that lying in politics damages our country and it's terrible. What I want to do and how I want to do it, I want to raise money and I want to hire a legal team and I want to run a private prosecution. And 
I made it clear that I am not a lawyer <laughs> and I'm, I'm new to this and we, we might fail, but we have a responsibility to try regardless because the whole world cannot see the UK make such a momentous decision based upon lies without anyone doing anything about it. That would be doubly humiliating that no one would stand up against it. So I just threw myself at it. And over the next four weeks, I had a very ambitious target of £100,000. And if we didn't hit that target, we wouldn't get anything because that's the way the crowdfunding system works on that first crowdfund. But the response was insane. We had national press and we hit £145,000 in four weeks from, I think, about 5,000 people. So we did really well. Um, and that, that's how it began, really. It was emotions driven. It was values driven. It was just having enough of how things were and wanting to change it. Thank you for mentioning Simon Sinek. Of course, if anybody's not read Start With Why, then absolutely you need to and watch the TED Talk. I remember being part of the crowdfund. I obviously watched you and what you were saying captured my anger, my own anger and distress at what was happening. So when we think about when we think about timing, you very definitely caught the mood. And as mm. you said, the crowdfund was particularly successful. So you knew what you were going to do. You set about funding it. What else did you need? Well, the process of ensuring the crowdfunding page was as credible and thorough as possible was a whole lesson in itself. It involved a lot of, um, of writing and graphic design and that kind of thing to make sure that the landing page was successful. However, um, when you say there that I knew what I wanted to do, I would just specify that I knew what I wanted to achieve and mm -hmm. I had a hope of what I wanted to do specifically. And I spoke to lawyers and I got a few lawyers on, on side and one lawyer in particular, Anthony Iskander, um, I still work with him to this day. He's been with me for five years now. And he's the person who actually originally theorized the concept of prosecuting based upon the offense of misconduct in public office. Now, his original theory was to prosecute the campaign organization itself, Vote Leave or Stronger In, whichever side he wanted to go for. But he... Um, the actual prosecution we did in the end was to use the same offence in a different way. So having Anthony on board as a barrister from the beginning helped me enormously. And he's been very helpful throughout the whole process. And if he hadn't written his original theory for how to prosecute in this manner, it's quite possible that we never would have prosecuted at all. Um, because I, I hadn't heard of misconduct in public office until Anthony wrote his article. So he was very important to the whole mm -hmm. process. So to answer your question, what else we needed was, was lawyers and we needed expertise. I, I knew how to raise the money. So I raised the money. I knew how to capture the timing, if you, if, if, as you say, and capture the, the public energy and emotion and bring everyone together. So I was providing leadership from that point of view. And my original plan was actually, as I remember, was um, initially I was never going to do any of the legal stuff. I was going to do some of the basics and I was going to be responsible for raising money and speaking to the press and, and handling the recruitment and selection of lawyers but my original understanding was that the lawyers, the top, the top lawyers in London, in the capital, they would be the people leading the way on this and doing it. But that is not what happened at all. Um, quite simply, £145,000 sounds like a lot of money, and it is. But in order to achieve what we needed to, 
it took years of research, months and months and months of arguing, gathering evidence. It, the, the job was enormous and it would have cost hundreds and hundreds of thousands of pounds, potentially millions in order to pay a team to get that done. Um, so instead, I just did 95% of the research, evidence gathering and case building myself. And then when I had like, built up my work, I presented it to some of the best lawyers in the city and we argued about it and they told me what was good and what wasn't. And they provided a kind of filter system. And that in the end was far more cost-effective. Mm. So yeah, it, it, the original plan was to let the lawyers get on with it, but that's not how it happened. In terms of power and influence and credibility, mm. what, what did you need around there? So if we fast forward a bit to the actual prosecution, I think that's the best period of time to reflect upon that. So let's, uh, let's, let's paint a picture. We initiated the prosecution in early 2019. And despite having some press coverage of what I was trying to achieve, relatively speaking, I was a complete nobody. Nobody knew who I was. Um, some people named me as being a businessman in the news. I am not a businessman. I run social enterprises. Who am, I, who am I up against? I'm up against the most famous and powerful politician in the whole country. Boris Johnson is known not just in the UK. He's known in India. He's known in the US, all over the world. He's this charismatic, funny, um, controversial and divisive, but also very popular with some people, politician. And... The power of that influence was enormous. If you're, an, if you're a nobody trying to hold to account this powerful person, realistically, you don't stand a chance because everybody in, in the courtroom and in public feels like they know Boris Johnson. They know his story. They know his background. They know who he is. They feel like, although they may not trust him at all, they know who he is. I'm a complete unknown. And that makes me very vulnerable and easy to target. If you're going to be the subject of a Daily Mail uh, news story, and if they're going to be very critical and try to present me as being um, someone very unpleasant, who's going to speak up for me? Do I have friends at the Daily Mail? Am I connected to the owner of the Daily Mail? Do I have a, um, relationships with journalists in that field? No, no to all those questions. Boris Johnson can answer yes to answer all of those questions. He knows all of those people. His influence is vast. He has connections with their bosses and their bosses' bosses. And so when you're prosecuting on a criminal level, that is uh, a whole new uh, world of high stakes. And people like me who, who aren't well-known are very easy targets in comparison to Mr. Johnson. And this was a key lesson I learned. So the narrative, the influence I tried to put out there was this, I may be a nobody, but I have a legal right to bring a private prosecution and I'm trying to, to establish, to prove for the public that when politicians lie to the public, they commit a criminal offense and they shouldn't be able to do it. But my influence was so small that my narrative did not get out there at all, hardly at all. Boris Johnson's narrative was that I was a vexatious, politically motivated private prosecutor who was trying to stop Brexit and that I believed that my case had no chance of winning whatsoever, but I was trying to frustrate him. 
It was an, an incredibly compelling narrative because each of the tabloids churned it out. His communications team churned it out. All of his um, political allies, the influence that he had with them enabled them and required them to be wheeled out on television and to attack us for what we were doing. So the moment our case became successful and we uh, we won the right to a jury trial, it became global news. The first thing that happened was we had Jacob Rees-Mogg, Dominic Raab, other politician after politician after politician coming out and saying, this is ridiculous. What are you doing? Um, what influence did I have? Where, where were my famous people coming to help me out? I had Gina Miller, who doesn't know me at all. <laughs> I've had a brief conversation with her a long time ago. We don't know each other. She came out in support of it and she defended it. Robert Peston, the ITV journalist, said some very pleasant things. And a few other people, actually Keir Starmer, um, back when he wasn't the Labour leader, he he said something quite supportive in a tweet. Um, he he contradicted a politician who said that it was a, 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 a publicity stunt. And he said that it's not a stunt. It's a matter of the criminal law and um, it needs to be decided in court, something like that. But when you don't have those connections, when you're not a part of the establishment, you don't have enough people really fighting your corner. Um, and in the end, it's the narrative. So your influence, who you know, who you are, how famous you are, how connected you are, the power you have in the form of, in the form of influence, that is what determines how effective you're going to be in getting your own narrative out there. And my influence and my power was nothing in comparison to Johnson's, despite being right. <laughs> so that's a lesson I've learned. And uh, the response has taken a while. What we're doing is we are trying to, um, to get our, our narrative out there in a completely dominating fashion. So what we're doing is we're producing a documentary film, a feature-length documentary film um, that will tell the whole story of our prosecution case and start to, to finish. It's the story of lying in politics and the fight to make it illegal. And it gets across to the audience what lying in politics really is, how it's a tool that politicians use to control us without our consent and abuse our human rights and our trust. And the film will also reveal what happened behind the scenes in our prosecution case against Mr. Johnson um, to demonstrate that our case was actually sabotaged by two very respected, famous people. And the film will work to explain how they did it, what they did specifically, why it worked and who they are. We're actually already in talks with a major distributor to get it into some of the best places that we hope to get it onto household name broadcasters. We want to get this story out there in a big way because we cannot allow the narrative that's currently out there to, to continue. To answer your question in a, in a summary, influence equates to the ability to which your narrative can be disseminated and broadcast to the public. If you have a small influence, you're not going to be able to get your narrative out there. If you have huge influence, you are. And we learned the lesson that when going up against someone that powerful, it doesn't matter that you're right. It doesn't matter that you have the evidence on your side, the law on your side, and morality on your side. What matters is that his influence is vast. So before we go back to court and before we prosecute again, we have to get our narrative out there. So we're launching a narrative attack, if you like, this documentary feature-length film, which is going very well. <laughs> when it's out there, when it's when it's clear what really happened, we'll return back to court and we'll continue our mission.
There's a guy on Twitter who put together all of the lies, Peter Stepanovich. Yeah, I think he's had about 12 million views now. Uh, he's a very compelling speaker on Twitter mm. and YouTube. He's got a lot of people following him and interested in what he has to say. And he would be a good person to interview, I think. <laughs> so there are people around who are talking about lies. Are you connected to him at all? Yes, we, we briefly um, had a bit of connection via social media. And I'm actually thinking of asking him to, uh, to appear in the film. Mm. Um, and there's also other people like uh, Peter Oban, who um, I think he mentioned recently. He's, he's written several books about lying in politics, one of which was one of the first books I started to read when I started this work. It was called The, um, the Rise of Political Lying, I think, and it was brilliant. Uh, and you mentioned Peter Oban. I watched him speak about his latest book, The Assault on Truth, extremely well written, and, and most of every page is references. So. I like that. I like that about his writing, yeah. There are other people like uh, Jennifer Nadal, who is the ex-Home Affairs editor for ITN. She runs an organisation called um, Compassion in Politics, along with her colleague, who's uh, a part of an ex-Nobel Prize-winning team, and uh, there's also another guy called Alex Tate, who's running an organization which exists to, to change advertising laws to prevent lying in politics and advertising from being allowed. So there's a growing movement. And over the last few years, it's not just me. There's a whole group of us rising up. And I think yes. that that is about that, that's connected to timing and influence, because these people, several of which are appearing in the film, um, they have influence with people that I don't. And that's a weak spot that I'm no longer going to have, thanks to them, I think. And working together, we can start this movement and really push it forward. So, yes, there, there are several of us in this space now. Yeah. What's the timeline for this? You've got this new documentary coming out. Yes, yeah, so and we this... hope to have the, the film out by the end of the summer, latest September, October time. That's the absolute latest. We hope to have it available for people to watch. And then once that's out and the narrative is very clear and people understand what happened, we think something quite dramatic might occur <laughs> because there's one piece of information that we're releasing concerning lying in politics that nobody else knows about. So it follows a year-long investigation that we carried out, which I can't talk about at the moment, but we've discovered something absolutely disgusting, which um, Prime Minister Boris Johnson said in 2020 that is explosive and um i think there will be very serious questions asked about whether or not he can continue to be the prime minister once this information is public who knows if that happens it's not um it's not required to happen but once the film is out once the truth has been revealed about this issue my intention is uh to return to court we have to return to court we have to get the record straight and we need to have our jury trial because we won the right to that jury trial after a judge, district judge, Marco Coleman, spent three months examining our case, looking at our evidence and carefully considering everything we presented to her. She carried out two hearings. She considered three written arguments and various other emails. She was very thorough. This is not normal activity. Just for a, a summons application for a jury trial, that is not something that a judge usually does. She was aware that people would be scrutinizing the ruling that she produced um, in great detail and it would be a matter of national interest. So she took her time with it and she was very careful. Compare that to the reaction of the high court who stepped in 
And after having our case for, as we've discovered now, about a day, <laughs> less than 24 hours, they shut down everything mm. in less than 24 hours. Compare those two and then ask yourself, which of those judgments do you think would be more reliable? Mm. That is also a key part of our film, because something we've discovered is that um, lying in politics is, of course, a terrible problem. But there's another problem when it comes to values, and that is that judges lie in court rulings, <laughs> which is just something that it, it never even occurred that they would do it. And uh, last week, um, my lawyer and I, we went to the courts and we collected documentation, which I can't talk about in detail, but essentially we've finally proven without any doubt that uh, these judges lied in their court ruling about our case. And we have all the papers to prove it. And that's forming a, a big part of the film. But the, the irony is, is that our desire to challenge lying in politics was shut down by a judge who lied in a court ruling. <laughs> so, yeah, interesting stuff. It is interesting stuff. So you, you've talked about setbacks. You've talked about judgments against you. You've talked about personal attacks from the media, the Daily Mail, you've talked about all of this. So what keeps you going, Marcus? I think it's that ambition thing. It's the desire to do something which I believe really matters and to leave a mark and to be able to make a contribution to the way things work and to change something which I consider to be an enormous problem. I find that to be more fulfilling than anything else. So I'm a very hardworking, resourceful person, and I feel confident that if I'd applied myself to a for-profit business for the last 10 years, my financial situation would be rather good right now. But um, I've just realized that that's not who I am. And I find the idea of changing the way society works and solving a problem to be more fulfilling. Of course, I want to make some money one day. <laughs> but uh, in my youth, whilst I'm still quite young, I'm... yeah. It, I, I want to do this. I want to, I want to solve this problem and I can't leave it. I, uh, when, when the, when the case was shut down and our, and our appeal was dismissed without any explanation whatsoever, apart from an email saying no, 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 which was very weird when that happened. And I was facing at that time, 350,000 pounds of debt. I was crushed financially, emotionally, psychologically. My confidence was just, it was just destroyed. And for about two weeks, I did give up <laughs> after about, I think it's about three years, three and a half years of work or something. And I thought, what the hell am I going to do now? And then I rallied and um, I just thought I am so close and there has clearly been some kind of sabotage here. Somebody has done something to three years of my work that has been funded by thousands of people who are all relying upon me as a form of leader in this movement. If I abandon this work, I will never forgive myself and I won't be who I thought I was. So I decided not to give up and I decided to discover the truth. And that's why I spent two years working to uncover what happened in our case. And that, that two year period, uh, ended last week. <laughs> so I'm very happy about that. We actually thought that something else had happened. We thought that um, a lawyer, but who I won't name, had sabotaged the entire thing by doing something 
uh, terrible. But these papers last week have proven that the lawyer we suspected was not guilty at all. Um, he made some mistakes, but he was not acting in a in the way we suspected. There's actually two other people. So, <laughs> yeah, two years of work done, um, still in crushing debt. But I am not giving up because I know how close I am. And I know that despite having everything taken away from me, something was also given to me because in the process of taking everything I had from me and putting me in huge debt and humiliating me, these people have actually given me a brilliant story to tell. Um, in terms of getting your narrative across, I'm not just the, the underdog. I'm now the person who has been treated terribly yet still I'm going, if you like. And that makes for an excellent story to tell. And it, 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 it's a great way of getting our narrative out there and making people understand what it is we're trying to achieve. And there is enormous power in that. Um, and when the film is finished, that's going to be dangerous for everybody else. The UK actually, we, we like an underdog. And um, you've got a, a David and Goliath story going on here, haven't you? A, li a little bit if it, it does feel a bit like that sometimes yeah if i could wave a magic wand and make your life easier <laughs> <laughs> what, what what do you wish for what would really help um well i'm currently trying to raise 50k to get the film finished and when the film is finished, we're selling it and using the money to pay off our court debts so we can go back to court. Is this magic wand logical or is it uh, a wand that can achieve fantastical things? It, it can achieve fantastical things, you know, let's <laughs> dream big. Okay. I would like you to wave your magical wand and this this spell that you would cast would mean that any public office holder in the world, anyone who works for the public benefit would be um, unable to lie to the public without a, um, a notification appearing, some kind of alert, some kind of clear broadcast that this person is lying to the public right now. Because if we can make that happen, the way I see it is that public office holders, politicians, judges, they're the leaders of society's values. They're, they're the leaders of how the world works. And if they're leading based upon deception, if they're lying and leading, they are by definition leading humanity in a direction which is incorrect, which is deceitful, which is wrong. And the best way to accelerate the advancement of humanity and to make sure that people the whole world is going in the right direction is to ensure that leaders can't lie to them. That's, that's just my, my belief. I think the politicians only lie to people when they want to achieve something for themselves personally, some kind of mm. fear is encouraging them to lie, some kind of inability on their part, some kind of failure on their part. They lie when their truth isn't strong enough. And so if we can stop them doing that, humanity as a whole will start making much, much, better decisions and we will advance faster that's how i that's how i see it they lie when their truth isn't strong enough yeah it's a, i've been working on that for the film actually it's it's something like this um politicians only lie when they know that their truth isn't strong enough that's mm. that's how i see it mm.
Okay. You said a few things that uh, I've written down, like, uh, I can't give up. Um, if I did, uh, I won't be who I think I am. I won't be who I thought I was. Um, is there a crowdfunding site at the moment that we can put a link to? No, we haven't crowdfunded for over a year now. I don't think we're going to be doing that soon. Um, but thank you for, for asking. We're not, we're not doing that at the moment. Right. Okay. Is there anything that you would like me to link to? Just the Twitter profile is fine. That'd be great. Yeah. Okay. Marcus Ball, I'm going to wrap it up there. I look forward to seeing your documentary. I know that when we met uh, a couple of years ago, you were somebody that I could just, I could just talk to. Marcus Ball, thank you so much for being the guest on the Leadership Board. Thank you for your time and thank you for involving me. It's been a pleasure. I really appreciate it. You're very welcome.